Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Stuart. That was surprising. I didn't know we are doing a second one. That's right. We are doing a second one. This, Like you said, Stuart, oh, this, like you've well, said. Wanda, where did you come from? Stuart, like you've said before, this episode was so chock-full that we had to spill over into another episode. This is the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. (laughs) Stuart, you're so surprised that we were that we that we were recording tonight. <laughs> you, you literally just went right into it. Literally After just went two right hours of recording, it's just it's still a little bit shocking. <laughs> well, we're back for part two with Dr. Joel Topf. On this episode, we talk about kind of medication management, which medications to avoid during chronic kidney disease, and also trying to dispel some myths. We, we get into talking about contrast-induced nephropathy. Does it really exist? We talk about ACEs and ARBs, what to do when the creatinine bumps, and, and also talking about Bactrim, SGLT2 inhibitors. A lot, of, a lot of interesting discussion here with Dr. Joel Toff. Just to remind you, Dr. Joel Toff is best known as at Kidneyboy on Twitter, he is one of the creators of the Nephrology Journal Club and is well-known for his blog, Precious Bodily Fluids, Musings of a Salt Whisperer. Dr. Toff is a board-certified nephrologist and partner at St. Clair Nephrology. He holds academic appointments as clinical assistant professor at Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine, and academic faculty for the St. John Hospital and Medical Center Nephrology Fellowship. And he's back for this part two on CKD with some random clinical pearls. I hope you enjoy it. I will. (laughs) That was your best one yet, Stuart. (laughs) Well, from where, what I wanted to do from here, I think there's some really interesting stuff, Joel, that I know you gave a recent talk on contrast induced nephropathy. So I want to get into that. I I do want to make sure we touch on medications that may or may not be safe in CKD, because I know that some of those are also controversial. So maybe we can talk about medications and then we'll we'll get to the contrast nephropathy next. So uh patients patients with uh patients with CKD3, CKD4, everyone says never give these patients NSAIDs, be very careful with Bactrim. Uh definitely no metformin. Well, now th- those recommendations have changed a little bit. So can you talk about some of those those medications that, that primary care doctors maybe places we make mistakes or where where maybe we believe things that aren't actually true. Yeah, let's 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 go through them. So the Bactrim the Bactrim data. This was a, a couple of years ago. Uh, a gentleman named Freilich looked at uh, I think it was an Ontario drug database. A very simple study. They looked for new prescriptions for Bactrim, and then they looked for people dying of sudden cardiac death within a couple of weeks of filling that prescription, and and they found three excess sudden cardiac death per thousand prescriptions. Wow. And you know, these these people were these were outpatients and they were probably getting treated for sinusitis and pretty mild diseases. And that to me, and that the control was amoxicillin. 
And mm. you know, to me, that sounds like a placebo, right? If, you're, <laughs> if you can treat it with amoxicillin, it wasn't that serious right. of an infection. And so how much sudden cardiac death are you willing to accept as your, in your placebo grip or for minor URI symptoms or maybe UTI mm -hmm. symptoms? And man, that number is very close to zero for me. Presumably, this was due to hyperkalemia because Bactrim is a combination of uh, trim sulfa, trimethoprim, and sulfamethoxazole. And trimethoprim is an antagonist at the epithelial sodium channel. So if you visualize the nephron, we're going to go to the distal nephron, so the cortical collecting duct. And this is the site where potassium secretion happens. And this drug acts exactly like a potassium-sparing diuretic, and it'll block potassium secretion. So hyperkalemia is a known and expected complication of this drug. Additionally, it will compete for creatinine secretion at the proximal tubule. And so, uh, you know, we talked about the difference between GFR and creatinine clearance. We didn't go into the details, but the reason that creatinine clearance does not equal GFR is some creatinine makes it into the urine not by being filtered at the glomerulus, but by being secreted at the proximal tubule. Since uh, Bactrim will compete for that secretion at the proximal tubule, you'll get decreased creatinine secretion. That means your serum creatinine goes up a little bit, about 10% or so. And that uh, that means that the, the creatinine clearance now actually better approximates the GFR if you're on Bactrim. It also, <laughs> no, it does. Yeah, there, another drug that does this is um, is cimetidine. And when I was a, when I was a fellow at the University of Chicago, uh, we kept getting enrolled, volunteering army style for these different studies, <laughs> and, and a lot of them it required to do uh, creatinine clearances as part of the study, and they usually would load us with cimetidine. So that our creatinine clearance would more better approximate our GFR. But the same thing happens with Bactrim. So you'll get a bump in the creatinine when you take Bactrim, but that has nothing to do with it. doesn't mean any change in the GFR. That's just, it means it's just, it's just an affecting, the serum creatinine goes up a little bit. Your GFR hasn't changed at all. But the rise in potassium is significant and it can be serious, especially in CKD. So that's a drug I, I avoid and try to tell all of my patients to avoid. I'd hate, I'd hate for them to have any sudden cardiac death. Right. And it's just also scary to put those patients on Bactrim and see their creatinine. Like if you happen to check labs, their creatinine's up, their K's up. You're just like, oh my gosh, this is ter This looks like a terrible basic metabolic panel I've just created here. So right. I, I've just stopped doing that after learning it the hard way in one or two patients, I'm sad to say. Right. And then the, the other one that, that the conventional wisdom to avoid is the NSAIDs. And so, uh, again, the NSAIDs, and it's, you know, it's the same, same pattern of stuff, right? It's going to bump your creatinine and it's going to bump your potassium. The NSAIDs work by antagonizing prostaglandins. And a lot of these patients, as they get to lower and lower GFRs, become dependent on those prostaglandins to maintain dilation of the afferent arterial so that their GFR is somewhat dependent on maintaining prostaglandins. When you give them an NSAID, you block those prostaglandins and you'll get a drop in your GFR. And then when you have decreased sodium delivery, that's going to result in decreased potassium excretion. And so these drugs are considered a no-no. And all the guidelines recommend avoiding them completely in chronic kidney disease patients. But you know these drugs aren't given for no reason, right? These patients usually have significant pain. And the alternative has always been just to give them opioids. Mm. It's not clear to me that those drugs don't have toxicity also. Right. And so to me, I'm not, 
I'm not in love with the guidelines saying just not use them. I, I mean, I have these patients in my clinic. They say they can't get out of bed without taking their, you know, their celecoxib or their ibuprofen in the morning. And, you know, taking those away really affects their lifestyle. And uh, I'm not sure if that's the best thing. And I think there's some there interesting data came out in um, uh, last year. Uh, study was called the Precision Trial. This came out of the fact that there was some concern that celecoxib may have some uh, cardiotoxic effects, right? Because the Vioxx had uh, significant cardiotoxicity. Uh, it had been pulled from the market. And the, the question was, did celecoxib have a similar thing? So they, the FDA mandated that uh, the manufacturer, I think it was Pfizer, had to do a post-marketing study where they looked for cardiotoxicity. And this is, this is, this is how you do a study, 20, an N of 24,000 patients. <laughs> and they were randomized uh, to celecoxib, ibuprofen, and naproxen. Now, the average creatinine in the study was 0.9, average age was 63, 75% Caucasian, and 75% female. And when you get that type of advanced age and you get white female and a creatinine of 0.9 with a standard deviation of 0.23, you actually have a significant number of patients with chronic kidney disease mm-hmm. that are randomized there. Now, take a look. at The, the, the doses were um, celecoxib, 100 milligrams BID, and if their pain wasn't controlled, they titrated up to 200 BID. Ibuprofen started at 600 TID, titrated up to 800 TID. And this is every day wow. for 20 months, right? <laughs> and then naproxen was uh, 375 BID, titrate up to 500 BID. Again, every day for 20 months. And their kidney events, their kidney outcomes after that, ibuprofen 1.1%, celecoxib 0.7%. And I'm telling patients they can't ever take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen. <laughs> right. right? It's just like, it just felt like we were, we were slamming these patients with very high doses of the drugs and there were not many kidney events. Because the GI bleed happened before that. Happened. <laughs> uh, well, GI events. So it was a. It was a. The primary outcome was major adverse coronary events or GI bleed. Oh, great. And okay, and that. Tw- okay, so at those doses, twenty months follow up for thirty four months. Two point seven percent with ibuprofen. Two point three percent with celecoxib. No significant difference between the two. Yeah, and GI bleed was one point six percent for ibuprofen and one point one percent for. Uh, no, Celebrex. Really? That's yeah. not, you, you'd expect it to be better than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for GI bleed. That's serious GI bleed. So, so what's clinically th- significant mm-hmm. was even less. So 0.9% ibuprofen, 07 for Celebrex. I don't know why there's clinically significant and serious. Like, what's the difference between clinically significant and serious? I'd have to look at the uh, definitions. The, the definitions. Yeah. I wonder if one of them was a transfusion. Yeah, one of them was an admission. Well, usually, major yeah. major bleeding is usually the two the tra- drop of two grams hemoglobin, or they need two units of blood. That's usually what it they says. Define definition it. is provided supplement. Uh, whatever. I'm sorry. Oh, you've got to be kidding. It's not even yeah. in the primary it's, literature. It's not. It's not even. Yeah, it's not even in the. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to pull that up just for you. Well, let's get out of the guts. Yeah, let's get let's get back to the let's get back oh. to this. So so we're talking oh. about NSAIDs here, and basically this this large study showing that like one percent <laughs> or less of patients are actually having problem patients who at, presumably at, could at have had CKD. Dose, right at a dose you would never consider. You know, eight hundred milligrams yeah. three times a day for twenty months. I would think their kidneys would shrivel right. and die. The right. problem is the <laughs> lawyers would eat you apart, though. 
if something happened to them. And I, 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 I think we'd, you'd have to be careful. Right. I, you know, I think we're, it's a situation where there's always risk. And I, and once I've read this study, I've been a little bit more liberal with right. what I tell people, you know, cause again, like Paul. and proud damn it (laughs) but a little more a little more liberal with the uh the the use of NSAIDs maybe not quite as toxic as we thought and then you know uh uh, of note I also so when I read this this was the first thing that that popped in my mind I was like well what's the other what's the rest of the data look like so it's 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 surprisingly thin there was a study in uh, in JAMA in 2001, which is a, it's a it's the male it's a, a 22,000 male physicians randomized to aspirin and beta carotene for primary prevention of heart disease and cancer, yeah. and then they had 14 years of follow up, and uh, the primary outcome was a bump in creatinine or GFR less than 55. They asked patients about use of uh, acetaminophen, aspirin, or NSAIDs. And in the end, 4.2% of the patients had elevated creatinine and that bump in creatinine or that rise in creatinine, the development of chronic kidney disease, essentially, whether they took aspirin, acetaminophen, or NSAIDs made no difference, right? So the people that took ibuprofen weren't at higher risk than the people that took NSAIDs or whether they took aspirin. And if you looked at their, they did, they did an estimate of their dose exposure. There was no dose response whatsoever. Hmm. But the crazy one was the same study, but this is done for nurses, the nurses health study. This is 32,000 <laughs> nurses. And then they, uh, they looked at women's that had women that had more than 1500 tablet consumption of uh, these pain medications. And here the risk of L of uh, chronic kidney disease was most was largest in the acetaminophen group. Uh, don't no tell st- me I can't give Tylenol to people now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you what We're the data shows. I know like, it doesn't work, but I'd like to be able to give it to people. <laughs> right? You're like, you want your placebos to be safe, damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the only signal they found, and it was, looks like there's a little dose response, was with the acetaminophen. Oh, jeez. And, uh, and this was backed up in a study with uh, patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So this link between NSAIDs and CKD is not nearly as well, as brightly lit as we would think, and certainly not as well lit as NSAIDs causing acute kidney injury. There's no doubt. Everybody's seen that a number of times. You take Mm -hmm. NSAIDs, especially if you're a little dehydrated, a little volume depleted, boom, you'll pop the kidneys. So I want to segue for you here. So, yeah. so if the person's taking a PPI along with that NSAID, it, maybe that's the more dangerous. Uh, maybe that's the more dangerous thing. What do you think about that? That link between I, PPIs know, and CKD? Yeah, I, you know that the PPI with CKD link that that has emerged. That's that's interesting. I think that I you know the the data consistently shows there that link to be there. What we're missing is kind of a mechanism. They don't understand, like, and I think that's a lot of what's so appealing to the NSAIDs causing CKD is we can go right to the physiology and we yeah. can say, hey, we can right to the afferent arterial and the prostaglandins. We're like, see, this is how it works. Right. And uh, the PPI story, you know, this one started. This one started with one of the things that's emerged over the last twenty years is the causes of acute interstitial nephritis has changed. So when we first th- discovered acute interstitial nephritis, it was 
due almost entirely to beta-lactam antibiotics. And you put people who, especially if they have osteomyelitis, are going to be on weeks and weeks of a, of a, a, a beta-lactam antibiotic. And three, four, six weeks into treatment, they start to have pea blood and their kidney function goes down. They get a rash. They get a real failure. And we, this is something that was a very stereotypical finding. They would get uh, white cell casts. They would get eosinophilia. They would get uh, fevers and they would get a rash and the renal failure. And you mm. take away the beta-lactam antibiotic and they would generally get better. So once we defined acute interstitial nephritis, we actually saw that it wasn't only with beta-lactams, that other antibiotics would also cause this. In the last 10 years, proton pump inhibitors zipped up the chart and became one of the most frequent causes of acute interstitial nephritis. So this is a cause of an AKI, and we would pull the proton pump inhibitor once we knew that that was the cause, and their kidney function would kind of get better, but it really wouldn't go all the way back down to normal. People started scratching their heads and like, well, why isn't it going back to normal? And what emerged was that this was actually a cause of chronic kidney disease. And again, this is looking at, you know, this is looking at databases and looking at exposure to proton pump inhibitors and development of CKD and seeing that those two correlated. Hmm. Yeah. So, I, I mean, in my practice, I've definitely started to put people on these for the minimal minimal time possible, you know, I'll give them, I'll give them six weeks worth and I'll say, okay, you know, you need it right now for six weeks, but after that, I'm going to, we're going to try to pull you off of this, uh, see if you still need it or not. And, and any patient who, any patient who was able to tolerate coming off them, I was taking off of them. Right. Same here. Yep. And then I've been using a lot, I've been going more to the H2 blockers. See if we can, if they, if they're dependent on the PPI, well, could we get by with, uh, with some ranitidine? Or some thimotidine instead. How about some cimetidine? You like and, that one? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and Joel, talk. Uh, we've been talking about the afferent, efferent arterial, and NSAIDs. Something that I was always taught. So if you have someone on an ACE or an ARB, because I do want to talk a little bit about an, an ACE and an ARB. First of all, when you're starting one, what bump in creatinine is okay? But then also, like, is it is it a big no-no to use an NSAID along with an ACRNR because then you're kind of dilating both the afferent or you're you're constricting the afferent arterial and and uh, you're dilating the efferent and dropping their GFR. Yeah, you're totally setting them up for AKI. And the the, the last the last piece of that puzzle is to add the diuretic in, right? The diuretic. No, I'm serious, right? But we, you yeah. know, we I already I told you to put everybody on a chlorothaladone, so I've, I've already set them up. <laughs> right. And they got to all be on an ACE inhibitor, and so they're they got two pieces of that, and then you throw on the um, the NSAID, and that doesn't actually. There was uh, that study was done in Great Britain where they were looking for risk factors for AKI. And if you just use the NSAID, they didn't find it. Or if you just use the NSAID and the ACE inhibitor, they didn't find it. But if you used all three, the ACE inhibitor, the diuretic, it's and the NSAID, then you, then you found a real signal for AKI. Right. And so, yeah, that, I mean, the physiology works out nicely. And so you could extrapolate, if you are going to use an ACE inhibitor and an NSAID, make sure the patient still stays well hydrated. Otherwise, you know, they're going right, so to be in trouble. This is the this is the thought behind the um, the sick rules that are popular in Great Britain and in uh, Canada, where patients are given these little pocket cards that 
it's a list of drugs that they should stop if they get sick, where they might get dehydrated or have a decreased PO intake. And it includes um, uh, metformin and the ACE inhibitors in their diuretics. It's the type of thing that makes sense, but whether it it hasn't prospectively been shown to be I, beneficial. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So I pull up a study. It's from the British Medical Journal 2012. It had 487,372 uh, participants. So large, right? Because it's probably using their database. They had 2,215 cases of acute kidney injury uh, in that large cohort. And looking at the co-treatment with these tre- these three agents had the highest predisposition to acute kidney injury. But just looking at the numbers, it was seven per 10,000 person years. Joel, I want to bring it back to our case from earlier in the show. And let's say that this guy, he has diabetes. Let's say he had a little bit of proteinuria. So we want to start him on an ACE or an ARB. What bump in his creatinine is acceptable? How do you interpret that? So the traditional rule is anything less than a 30% bump in creatinine is acceptable. And if it's more than that, you probably want to stop the drug. And then if you listen, if you listen to uh, lectures, there, the, the subtext there was actually, if you look at the people that get the most benefit from the ACE inhibitors, it's the patients that get the largest bump in creatinine, <laughs> actually get the most renal protection. And this was a post hoc analysis of some of the ARB studies that looked at diabetes early on. But um, this past year, there was a, a study by uh, Schmidt, Mansfield, and uh, Tomlinson in the BMJ. This was March 2017. Serum creatinine elevation after renin-angiotensin system blockade and long-term mm-hmm. cardiorenal toxicity. And they they just they kind of threw this whole theory under the bus that any increase in creatinine, the, the greater the increase in creatinine, the greater mm-hmm. the future risk for mortality. And there was no threshold effect. There was no protection, no no magical number of 30%. The more the, the creatinine rose after you added the ACE inhibitor, the worse these patients ultimately did. The problem is this was just uh, this was just comparing it to – this is just what happens to their creatinine. It's not – it doesn't give you any guidance, right? Because it doesn't say what happened if you stop the drug, <laughs> and right? Because presumably these patients have an indication for the drug, and right. the indications for ACE inhibitors are pretty compelling, and so, you know, it, this is, it's, it's almost like this is laying down the groundwork for a very interesting randomized controlled trial where if you get patients that get a significant bump where it looks like they're going to have bad outcomes going forward. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the people that had a, a bump in their creatinine of uh, 40% or more, and they reached 25% reaching mortality at less than three years. So that's a study that's doable with that type of outcomes. So, I mean, this, you know, hopefully this is what's going to, this will lead to a randomized control trial where we actually know whether it's better to stop the drug or not, but this doesn't answer that question. It just shows that there's, these people are at risk and it also kind of debunks the uh, threshold argument that 30% is some kind of magic number that below that's fine. But it, you know, it's, it's one of those things that they, they got written in somebody's discussion and then became kind of dogma that's been repeated <laughs> a thousand times later since, since then, right? Right. I know, anyway, I love that people are going out and testing this dogma right. and uh, and finding out what the truth is. Let's say that we start this guy on it and he bumps 15%. I think most people would just let it ride and keep him on the drug. If it bumps 35 or 40%, it's kind of got to be a shared decision-making, maybe close follow-up 
I don't know how you would handle that. I, I'll tell you what, if somebody bumps 40%, I have a hard time keeping on the drug. That's just a lot of loss of GFR. Okay. Right. I, I, I probably would stop the drug when it wouldn't be a shared decision making. I'm not sure if it's the right decision, but that, <laughs> but no, but the data for the, you know, increased creatinine is not a good thing. And I think I would just, uh, right. you know, I mean, let, let's flip this around. Let's take a look at, you know, you take a look at, uh, the ARB studies, uh, Renal and IDNT. These are the, the landmark studies from 2002. The reason that we use ARBs in type 2 diabetes, and they provided you know, somewhere around um, uh, 16% protection from a composite endpoint, a doubling of serum creatinine, dialysis, or death. Well, you know, over five years, a 16% reduction of this relative risk versus a 40% bump in creatinine. I mean, it's not, it's not like what you're getting with this drug is nirvana. Like you're getting this, <laughs> you're, you're slightly loading the dice in these guys' favor, favor right? Right. Right. And so I would probably stop. Great. And and a question we had on Facebook was, okay, I put a patient on, on an ACE or an ARB, and it, let's say it's at a maximum dose. Is there any point to keep checking their albumin-creatinine ratio? What are we going to do with that information? I can't think of a compelling reason to continue <laughs> to check that. I would get, you know... I guess the argument, you know, uh, you're going to get their blood pressure down already, right? You have a compelling reason to already con- control their blood pressure. That's another way you can lower their proteinuria. Um, there are some other agents that you can add, right? You can add the um, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, and they will also lower the proteinuria a little bit. What you're missing there, uh, as far as I'm aware of, there's no outcomes data that shows that reducing the proteinuria with that mechanism, with the calcium channel blocker, has a beneficial effect. Mm-hmm. The other thing you can do to further lower the proteinuria is you can add um, an aldosterone antagonist, but the history of adding additional agents to further lower the proteinuria is rather speckled, right? So right. we first tried it with um, endothelin antagonists in the altitude study, which did a beautiful job of lowering proteinuria, but those patients had excess heart failure. And then we did it with ACE and ARBs again, Mm -hmm. did a beautiful job of lowering proteinuria, but they had excess acute kidney injury, excess hyperkalemia, and Mm -hmm. no signal. Even in the few patients or the patients that didn't develop those complications, they didn't see any signal that they lowered their progression of kidney failure. And the combination of aldosterone antagonists and ARBs we know they lower proteinuria further, but no one's done the study to say if it has better outcomes. And man, the the history doesn't look good. Yeah. And so I wouldn't. I would not. Inv- uh, I won't tell you that I never do it, but it's not something I, I certainly wouldn't advise other people to to do it. Yeah. Paul and Stuart, I, I think one of the only other topics, I mean, we could go on forever. Another topic that we haven't gotten into yet is contrast nephropathy, which I think we can touch on in the last little bit here. But did you guys have other places you wanted to go? Um, I mean, we've been recording for like 90 minutes. so Yeah. Like, like I said, it's probably going to be two episodes. Who knows? Uh, kind of want to talk just briefly about empagliflozin and your position on uh, using that for renal protection in diabetic patients. So I actually just posted a video. Um, oh, you don't say. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a nice talk on baglifosin and renal disease. And so 
what we we have uh, two outcome studies, uh, one called Canvas and one called Empareg. One of them looking at empagliflozin, the other one looking at canagliflozin. And these were studies designed to look at cardiovascular outcomes. And their both of their cardiovascular outcomes were positive. And they also looked at renal outcomes, but as a secondary endpoint. And that does compromise the study to some degree. And the reason it compromises the study, actually, let's back up a little bit. Let's make sure we know what we're talking about. These drugs are the inhibitors of SGLT2. And this is the molecule that allows the kidney to reabsorb glucose. And so these are drugs designed to treat type 2 diabetes, and they block the kidney from reabsorbing glucose. So even though your serum glucose might only be 120 or 80, you're going to spill glucose in the urine. So normally you won't spill glucose till your glucose gets over 200. This drug lowers that threshold down to, I think it's about 140. So you'll start peeing out glucose at a much lower glucose. That peeing out that glucose is going to lower your A1C. It's going to lower your uh uh, energy intake, right? You're going to start peeing out glucose. So these patients lose weight. It acts as a diuretic. And so these patients um, actually will, their blood pressure reliably falls about five points systolic. Um, they lose about two kilograms of body weight and their A1C goes down by about a half a point. These studies looked at renal end, endpoints. Now, again, it's not a great population to study. They were looking at people that were at high risk for cardiovascular disease, but they didn't have low GFRs. Their average GFR was in the high 70s. I think it was 77 in one and 80 in the other. And some of them had diabetic nephropathy, but not a lot of them. It was about 10% of the people had heavy proteinuria when you did a dipstick or a measurement of microalbumin to creatinine ratio. But that said, they were able to cross a threshold and they, they both the studies kind of created somewhat unusual uh, renal outcomes. So the Empireg, see if I get this right, they had their renal outcome was development of new macroalbuminuria, albumin greater than 300, plus, or in addition, another, well, another composite was a doubling of serum creatinine. Another one was development of renal failures requiring dialysis. And another one was death due to renal disease. So that is a composite that has, on the one hand, Two things that are super important to patients, death and dialysis. And on the other hand, doubling the serum creatinine and development of proteinuria, things that most patients really wouldn't worry about. Sounds like something the doctor worries about in the patient. <laughs> True. Right. So that's, and that's a problem with those composite outcomes. Uh, and then the Canvas study, theirs was, they had the, uh, the doubling of, they had, no, not doubling serum creatinine, GFR dropping by 40%, which is something they seem to have created out of thin air. I've never heard of that before. And then new macroalbuminuria and then death and dialysis in addition. And using those thresholds, the drugs were effective. But this is, that's not a threshold that's going to be adequate for the FDA. And neither of them have an indication yet for preventing diabetic kidney disease. And I know that M. Pagliflozin is now recruiting and may have already started a trial of patients with diabetic nephropathy to see if this drug works in a population that looks more similar to the study, the studies that we did with ARBs, Renal and IDNT. I want to circle back one last thing about these drugs. These drugs did prevent these outcomes, and even though nearly 80% of their patients were on ARBs or ACE inhibitors. So these patients were really getting state-of-the-art renal protection, and yet 
these drugs were still able to add additional renal protection. Nobody's been able to show that before. Mm. Even though it's not a perfect study and there's a lot of questions about it, it is an impressive result. And I, I'm, to me, I think these drugs are, are real game changers. Very interesting. Well, the last thing I want to ask about is the contrast-induced nephropathy. There was a study, I think it was in the emergency medicine lit- literature from earlier this year, kind of sh- questioning whether contrast-induced nephropathy even exists at all. And I think you have some other studies in, in your recent talk that I, that I had seen as well. So where are you at on this, on this contrast-induced nephropathy controversy? Right. So this, this has been has been simmering for a long time. It's been a pretty popular uh, question in the uh, radiology literature. And I first saw uh, a couple of meta-analysis back in, uh, I think it was 2013, where these things emerged. And there was a definite signal, or there was a lack of signal, that administering contrast caused any problem. Now, this way these studies are done is they they get patients that received contrast and they try to match them up with similar patients that don't receive contrast and they try to see whether there was an increased uh, risk of contrast nephropathy. And there, you know, this is sophisticated statistics. And every time those statistics get sophisticated, you start to question, you know, what are we really looking at? Uh, is this measuring what it purports to look at? This became real hot in nephrology uh, about a year ago when uh, a gentleman named uh, Glenn Chertow published an analysis that really showed the same thing, that there was no signal that receiving contrast during hospitalization was associated with developing acute kidney injury during that same hospitalization. And now it was no longer uh, trapped safely in the radiology literature. This was now front and center in the nephrology literature, and really, we were really forced to answer that. Most people that I talked to, just they, they, it was hard for them to believe uh, but the data looked, you know, to me, if there should be a signal, right? If the contrast causes acute kidney injury, when you look at everybody getting contrast, we should see more acute kidney injury. And he just couldn't find that signal. And then um, later, early in 2017, I think it was in February 2017, there was a trial, I believe it was posted in the Lancet, called the Amazing Trial. And the amazing trial is the kind of the, the logical progression here. It says, well, if there's no such thing as contrast nephropathy, why do we even give uh, prophylaxis? Why would we give saline to patients that are about to go for cardiac cath? And that's the question that amazing asks. They randomize patients to either placebo or saline, or the, not really placebo, they, no, no IV fluids versus mm-hmm. IV fluids. And um, they protocolized the patients and they got significant fluids if they were on the uh, fluids protocol. I think it was like 800 before the contract, the cath and 800 after the contrast versus nothing. They only enrolled people with GFR down to 30. So CKD stage three is what they were looking at. Um, and they found absolutely no difference in the risk of this contrast nephropathy. And that, you know, to me, that's, that's the classics. That's the, that's the study you need to do to show that this doesn't, this might not exist. Um, now, again, it's not the sickest population. It's not the people with a GFR of 22, where there's really risk, significant risk of dialysis mm-hmm. if their GFR drops at all. 
But, you know, these are patients that normally we would be very concerned about the risk of contrast nephropathy. We would be very uh, proactive in giving them IV fluids and trying to do everything we could to prevent it or even avoid the test completely because we were worried about the risk of contrast nephropathy. And there was no indication that the fluids helped at all. That said, I believe there is an entity of contrast neuropathy. I've definitely seen patients that are stable as a three-legged table. They're moving right along and they get exposed to contrast and their kidney function deteriorates. And I can't point to any other event that happened. But I think the vast majority of patients that we call contrast nephropathy are not such straightforward cases. They're patients that are in the hospital and they're acutely ill and they have sepsis or they have hypotension and, you know, or they might, or they're on aminoglycosides or they got 16 different reasons that they could have acute kidney injury. But because they got, you know, a, a, a CT angiogram when they came in the hospital to rule out a PE, we point to that PE and we say there's contrast nephropathy hmm. when it could have been the hypotension or it could have been the sepsis or it could have been the aminoglycoside that did it. And every time you do that, you kind of solidify in your brain that, oh, I saw another case of contrast nephropathy. And so it's impossible for this disease not to exist because I've seen it dozens or hundreds of times in my career. And I think that that a lot of these cases may not be as clear cut and that the real rate of contrast nephropathy patients that, like I said, were completely stable and have no other explanation is actually much rarer and a lot of the conclusions we say were, well, what, how do we figure out the people that have risk factors for contrast nephropathy or how do we find that, how do we protect people against contrast nephropathy? We're really just trying to protect against these random variations in creatinine or these uh, developments of acute AKI uh, from other etiologies. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we're actually protecting against contrast. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I guess that part never occurred to me is we tend not to do radiographic contrast-driven studies on patients who are doing terrific. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Probably something else going on, too. Yeah, it's just, that's a great point. Yeah, you just, did you just thank yourself? Oh, never mind. I don't think you did. I think I did not. Okay. Are you hearing? It sounds like something I would do. Stuart is having auditory hallucinations. We might, we might. (laughs) It's about time to call it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's about time to call it. I'd also like some take-home points just for, we, we discussed a lot of different drugs. We discussed contrast nephropathy. Okay, let's go, I'll roll through those. Okay. So in CKD, you want to be careful with the medications that you're using. So the ones that you always think about, metformin, you can use down to a GFR of 30 now. Bactrim is a no-no. This is a, it's going to make your metabolic profile look lousy. It's going to bump their creatinine. It's going to bump their potassium, and it increases their risk for sudden cardiac death. You want to avoid that drug. Uh, NSAIDs, this is a drug that's on everybody's no-no list for CKD. There is some evidence, especially in mild CKD, that it might not be nearly as dangerous as we had once feared. So that's something that at least something that you should be able to consider and think carefully about stopping their NSAIDs and giving them an opioid because you may not be doing them uh, a favor if you do that. Contrast nephropathy. This is uh, an area of intense controversy. The recent data really looks like this disease is not nearly as common as we had once thought. And especially in patients with GFRs over 30, that the use of IV fluids didn't prevent any episodes of contrast nephropathy in the one study that looked at it, though that's something that needs to be repeated before we can really call that gospel. But it is really surprising that it's even a signal at all. And I'd keep your uh, your ears open about that. 
you know, I'd love to keep talking. I have more questions, but uh, we gotta we gotta let you go. And uh, yeah, and, okay. And you're a chief of nephrology, so you're still working at Cashlack. We can we can get you back another time, and people can hit you up on Twitter for yep. questions that we that we missed uh, from from social media. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was okay, amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Okay, yeah, have a good one, This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, Ooh, bringing yeah. you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicious. You could, you could find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You should also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll get our expertly done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Well, hi, Paul. I wanted to give a special thanks to all the people who helped produce this episode, the show notes, our wonderful artwork and infographics. That was Justin Burke, Annie Medina, and Kate Grant, who is a physician artist and has been producing a lot of artwork for us. There's links to her own website in our show notes. Definitely check those out. And thank you, Annie, Kate, and Justin for all your hard work.